From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. I mean, we all have complicated families these days with divorce and remarriage and blended families. And I think the open adoption model is just a different version of that. You know, when we marry, we get extra family, whether we want them or not. (laughs) I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and our guest today is Minna Sherlander-Morse. We'll be talking about Minna's Evolve essay, questioning easy narratives, exploring adoption. So along with her husband, Rabbi Fred Sherlander Dobb, Minna is the adoptive parent of two teenagers. And this essay challenges the assumption that adoption is a win-win for all. And it attempts to use a Jewish framework to delve into the truly complicated set of ethical and practical issues that are raised by adoption in various forms. Minna makes a compelling case that adoption is something that should concern everyone, everyone who cares about an equitable society and the well being of all families. And just so you know, November is also National Adoption Month. And we're getting this episode released just under the wire. As a reminder, all Evolve essays can be found at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Reading Minna's essay will give you a richer listening experience. You'll also find on our website, groundbreaking essays on race, environmental justice, gender, Israel-Palestine, and more. So check out evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Now, what you've been waiting for, time for our guest. Minna Sherlander-Morse, is a freelance editor and project manager who has devoted professional and volunteer energy to educating fellow Jews and others about racism, Jewish diversity, and the reason why we're here today, the complexity of adoption. She serves on the Jews of Color and Allies Advisory Committee of Reconstructing Judaism and facilitates an interdenominational support group sponsored by the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association. And that's for clergy and spouses involved in transracial adoption. And we also talk about this. She is currently pursuing a graduate certificate in Jewish ethics and social justice at the Jewish Theological Seminary with a focus on adoption issues. Minna Sherlander-Morse, great to see you. Welcome, welcome to the show. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So a lot to talk about. This is this is National Adoption Month, and, and there have been some high-profile pieces in The New Yorker and The Atlantic calling attention to this issue. You've, you've written, and, and in the midst of, of, of really delving into ethical issues surrounding adoption. So, so I'm wondering, as, as an adoptive parent of, of, of two children, what, what is it or what was it in your personal experience or just personal evolution that that really started getting you thinking about the ethical issues surrounding adoption and maybe questioning some of the assumptions you, you had going into it? Well, I think like many uh, prospective parents looking at adoption, um, I didn't think very deeply at the time, to be perfectly honest. We, it was 
the narrative of adoption being a win-win of a just another way of forming a family and of us feeling from an ethical perspective in a way not glued to biology um, the idea that there were children to care for kind of drove us towards adoption I mean I'm not going to say initially we did go through a fertility kind of like okay we're done I'm <laughs> let's like look at another option um, and in that process and after that process of becoming a parent through adoption, through watching engagement with social workers, through course of desire of my daughter's, my elder child's birth mom, um, we didn't know anything going in. Uh, adoption happened very quickly for us. And so through knowing her and hearing over the years more of her story, and also because we had adopted transracially, um, kind of realizing that though I was raised in a progressive household, in a community, um, I mentioned to you when we spoke previously that I, I was raised by secular Jews in ethical culture, not in a Jewish community. And so it was an integrated, it's a, a humanist uh, community that was founded by a former rabbi. In, in Baltimore, was it? This was in Baltimore. Right. So, I mean, my when people ask me, like, what's an unusual thing about you? I say, I taught Jada Pinkett Smith Sunday school. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, wow. Her, her grandmother was the matriarch of the community. So I grew up in, in, in that respect, at least on my weekends, in an integrated community and thought that it may, this was something that I could handle, right? Like, And then we, I'm raising a child of color and I'm, a, I'm a looking around at how many kids of color are going to be at our school? How many black kids are going to specifically are going to be at our school? And, but then, and facing the kinds of questions that we got and realizing that racism and diversity look different from within than from without. I turned to communities that were forming online um, that were led by adult adoptees of color and learning more about what their experiences had been as transracial adoptees. So starting with that racial lens of what is it like for a kid who is not white to be raised, you know, for many people in utter whiteness, um, but then also getting more of a sense of some of the ethical pitfalls of adoption generally, and more about the history of adoption, which is really rather problematic and, and the the narratives that are born, just like with racism in this country, the narratives that were born from that history kind of still are in us today, even though we don't realize that we're living them out. Lots of lots of ways to go. I mean, I guess first off, just just for a basic definition of terms, you mentioned an open adoption. Um, folks that haven't gotten through the process might not understand open sure. adoption versus closed adoption. Can you explain the difference? Sure. So the, the history in our country of adoption is total secrecy. And um, there was the idea that um, to protect the, the expectant, the birth mother's privacy and to and protect everyone involved and to make it seem as though you had an as if biological family back in the day, uh, records were closed. And in fact, only recently are adoptee activists getting birth records open uh, state by state so that they have access to their original birth records. 
So, I mean, so there's a history of the evolution um, from closed adoptions to open that is actually kind of complicated, but um, openness means that um, there is at least a recognition um, of the importance of birth family, birth heritage to a child and to their identity formation and some effort to provide that information to the kid, but open adoption, what I would consider open adoption is actually when you're able, and sometimes we're not for various reasons, but when you're able to have a relation, an ongoing relationship with the, um, with the birth family. So some people just send letters and that's sort of a little open. Some people see each other once or more a year, and some people are in regular contact and see each other much more frequently. So you wrote in your Evolve essay about crossing racial and cultural lines and how that can be really enriching for the culture of the adopters, but, but very problematic potentially for the adopted child. And um, wondering if you could, you know, if you could say more about your experience there potentially and, 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 and also what, what kinds of things have you, have you learned from that process? So, um, as I said, I've learned a great deal from adult adoptees because they're the ones who have lived this experience from, you know, whatever age through adulthood. I think that in some of our congregations, for instance, a lot of the diversity is among our children, right? There are adoptive families and there looks like a lot of diversity, but is white parents with children of color from various places. It feels enriching for us, it is enriching. I mean, the I think adopting transracially ultimately thrust me. I think we all need to be thrust. <laughs> and we uh, this way just was the, the, the impetus that thrust me into learning and better under, learning from people of color and as specifically, at least at first, transracial adoptees, what racism really looks like in this country, uh, not just on the surface, um, not just explicit, but the microaggressions that happen every day. Um, the kind of um, insidious uh, behavior that comes from that comes from narratives that we've absorbed over the years from our history about what pe- X people are like, what Black people are like, what Asian people are like. So that was enriching for me, <laughs> and I'm glad that my children have their birth families, and I'm glad I've been able to provide racial mirrors in their lives. But I don't know that I've done either enough. I don't know that most adoptees have the same opportunities. I don't know. And the identity issues that many adoptees face, even um, not adoptees of color. I mean, adoptees generally are facing identity issues as they come of age, um, just trying to grapple with who they are and what what the broken tie is from their past, but for adoptees of color, they're trying to navigate a racist society with cultural guides who are sort of not, not necessarily clued in. And I, I, you met, when we spoke earlier, you mentioned Colin um, Kaepernick's series, documentaries, or it's not documentary series, like dramatization series of his childhood, Colin in black and white. Right. It's a very, um, he's done, I mean, I know he adores his adoptive parents, and I guess they've come to grips with how clueless they were. 
because <laughs> um, because he is takes you know kid gloves are off. Um, he he paints a very like unflattering picture or or and a somewhat sympathetic picture of his very loving parents who have been conditioned the way all of us have and worse because they they were living in a very insular environment. So, from what I understand, perhaps like in addition to challenging identity issues that it could present for adoptees, the adoption as a practice, as an institution, I mean, the main critiques are that it's, it's, it's brought, it's taken or, or moved kids from poor households, often from households of color to wealthier households to whiter households. And, and has been, you know, historically driven by the needs of or the desires of parents as opposed to um, the needs needs of, 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 of children. But also along the same lines, like the, the number of adoptions in this country has has declined dramatically from even even two decades ago. Like I've just looked at the, the overall numbers and it's way down. It's much less common as a practice. So, so it seems like on, on, on some level society has, has, or states have, have started to accept the criticisms that, that you've made in, in, in your, your, your essay. So I, I guess I want to ask by what's, you know, what's the work that, that needs to be, um, needs to be done in this area. On the international front, I think that the questions about corruption um, I mean, there, there is, there is some sort of feeding the need, feeding the desire that goes on um, when there's not a lot of oversight. So that first families are misguided about what's going to happen with their kids, and then suddenly they're placed out from an orphanage where they thought they were putting them for safekeeping for a while because they were struggling, or, or straight out kidnapping. That's not all that happens. There are kids in orphanages who need to be deinstitutionalized and maybe taken care of locally and like, yes, I think worst case scenario adopted overseas out of country. Um, but that's all happened on a policy level. I don't think, I think the, the domestic adoption, I don't know enough to know how drastically domestic infant adoption has decreased. Um, I know there's a large pool of kids in the foster system who are older who need loving families, that they'd be better off in family than in um, group homes, et cetera. But people want to adopt babies. <laughs> so yeah, the, I, I don't know the numbers are that clear that the criticism has been accepted and so th adoptions are going down. I think there's, there's complicated factors that lead to that. And right now with the, um, with the restrictions on abortion, um, in places like Texas, Texas has always been a like serious wild west on adoption and the pregnancy crisis centers, right? Um, where they mm. are trying to um, convince someone not to get an abortion, usually often have ties to adoption agencies or facilitators. So and this is, there's a, like, I can't even begin to enumerate all of the issues that aren't regulated in this country that affect children negatively. I want to say people like me, like who are kind of just trying to form a family and are generally think of themselves as ethical, have a different set of um, like personal choice points to make. But uh, 
I think that many people do look to adoption. I don't think that adoption is wrong. I love, I mean, I think that I've got a real loving family. Um, I think that sometimes there's a limitation of choice for struggling expectant parents. Sometimes adoption is exactly what's the, the best possible scenario. And I would say, hopefully if it's an open adoption, you know, all the, that it's actually less damaging. But in the adoption, adoptee world, adoption reform advocacy world, there's a, there's a slogan or, or saying that adoption is too often a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I think an expectant mother or struggling expectant parent facing an ill-timed pregnancy shouldn't just have permanent dissolution of her, you know, ties to her child as the as the as the best option. Talking about permanent dissolution, that that raises an interesting point. Um, you had said when actually when we spoke um, before the interview that that um, the the um, American model really derives from almost a, an ancient Roman approach to to adoption and how it's very different from the way a similar practice might be described in in the Talmud and Jewish sources. So are, are you able to, to yeah, talk sure. about the difference and, and sort of why it, why it matters? Yeah. Um, so what interested me is that in in Jewish tradition, there is something much more akin to guardianship. Than, than legal adoption. The Roman system was, and th that was about caring for a needy child, right? And it didn't, from what I can tell, it didn't necessarily mean that the guardian who was assigned by the court would need to take the child in and raise the child, but that was sometimes needed and so um, really exalted in the Talmud as like, the, like the biggest mitzvah one could do and all to the good, right? Needy children need to be taken care of. But in at least in the Middle Ages, it's very clear in many communities that the widowed mother of a fatherless child was still very engaged in the rearing of her child and so was extended family. So the guardian would take care of those things that a father would take care of, making sure that the child was educated and making sure that the finances were handled and things like that. So it was a sort of spectrum of gap filling that could also include raising a child, but the biological heritage was always honored. So the guardian could be honored like a father, but it wouldn't be erased that the father was less and such, if that makes sense. In Roman, the Roman model, it is uh, the need for an heir that drove adoption. It was legal, biological ties were legally severed. And the American model is some kind of awkward combination of these two, <laughs> these two impulses of helping a needy child or a, a perceived needy child and forming a family and a method of family formation. So I wouldn't say that we're a direct, just like direct complete descendant of the West of the Roman model, but the, the outcome is, I think, that the desire for family formation drives the process to a fault. Um, the, the, ultimately, the prospective adoptive parents are the client of the agency or the lawyer. And so the expectant 
parent who's considering adoption doesn't necessarily have their legal needs like covered, their interests covered to the same extent. And the the way that they're the way that they're encouraged to relinquish, um, wittingly or unwittingly, kind of makes it seem as though this is the greatest gift that they could give to their child. I mean, if I understood it correctly, though, you and in your case and in, in cases of open adoptions don't totally sever ties. Um, are, I mean, are you able to tell us about a time you were you were really glad that you that you didn't that that either you or your or your child was 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 glad there was an, a birth family in in the picture in in some sense yeah i don't think there's a time that that hasn't been the case i mean so legally it's severed legally adoption um the institution of adoption legally terminates the rights of the biological parents but the idea behind open adoption is to keep that as family anyway um to to whatever extent so um like when my, okay when my daughter started asking where babies come from we were able to like physically say that you know you know this person is your tummy mommy or whatever language we used at the time and that was incredibly useful it made her feel less different from her friends in school more connected to her birth mom yeah i mean all along i think that there's there's a continuity of identity that um, it's complex, but to navigate, but it's, um, it's much clearer to the kids, I think. I mean, we all have complicated families these days with divorce and remarriage and blended families. And I think the open adoption model is just a different version of that. You know, when we marry, we get extra family, whether we want them or not. (laughs) (laughs) We all have a crazy aunt. So we, I, I adore my, my children's birth moms. And we navigate relationship like everybody navigates relationship and family. At, at, at what age do you first get the question like, mommy, why do I, why do I look different from you? And how do you, how do you answer right. that? Would you, and would you answer it differently today? I wonder. No, I mean, one, so one there, there's the, the consistent for people who are getting good advice <laughs> from adoption <laughs> professionals. The good adoption professionals are advising everyone to have have long been advising everyone to talk about adoption from the get-go. Um, and people do it in very different ways and have very different narratives about, you know, you were meant for me, which I, is, is a narrative I really don't think is appropriate um, to suggest that, that there needed to be a rupture in the family for you to be where you needed to be um, in your original family. But, um, but we talk about adoption like growing in someone else's womb for a very long time. And we have birth stories that we share from even when they're babies. So we get used to sharing it. And right now I feel like I'm, I'm normalizing exactly the same thing I'm critiquing, but um, there are ways that we all tell stories about family to create bonds. Um, I just, I want them to be developmentally appropriate and true stories. So and sensitive to these differences. So once my daughter asked me, like, um, I, you know, kind of why don't we match? I don't remember at what age. 
And she knew her birth mom at that point, but you know, genetics doesn't make a whole lot of sense to children. So I explained that you look like your birth mom and I wish that I, I wish that I looked like you. I wish we could all be the same color, but what I wanted to make sure I didn't say or suggest by not saying explicitly, I wished I looked like you was I wish she looked like me, which wasn't true, but which she in our society naturally would have sort of assumed. If you're enjoying this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Check out our back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking conversations. Please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings really help others find out about the show. Okay, now back to the interview with Minna Sherlander Morse. You, you've, you've started, from what I understand, you've started this, this program at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and, you, and you're really attempting to delve into adoption from a Jewish ethical perspective. So can you, can you tell us about this project, maybe what you're hoping to find, what you found, where, <laughs> where you still need to go? Right. Thanks. So I've been trying to find a framework for doing this for years. And this happened to pop up during COVID where I had remote access to classes at JTS and, and learned folks to sort of learn from. And I ended up being able to take a, what turned out to be, and I I, I think I knew a really relevant class in bioethics for semester and, um, and came in knowing that the traditional model of guardianship was very different from our model. What I didn't know that I would find is just how deeply entrenched the win-win narrative was among the folks in the conservative movement forging halakha. Um, so I looked at that. I looked at the conservative movements uh, grappling with much newer. I think of adoption as a relatively modern adoption as a relatively new thing. It's 150 years old, but surrogacy and gamete donation were issues that bioethicists went Ah, what do we do? And we're looking um, at the, not just the sort of logistical, ritual, legal ramifications of who's the father, who's the mother, but also at uh, who's affected, who's harmed in this process, who might be harmed in this process. Is there exploitation possible? Is there physical harm possible? And in many cases, not all, in many cases would say like, these are serious issues, you should consider adoption first. And so my big red flag was, is that there are ethical issues in adoption too. And I think first and foremost is that no one is looking at, as I said in this article in Evolve, um, what harm might've been done to the folks who relinquished this child. Like how did this child become available for adoption? That's something we should know. And the truth is we think we know, we assume that there are ethical practices in play and that the birth parent had agency and that this was a choice that they made for whatever reason. And that in some cases that they're an angel and this was the most loving thing that they could do for their child. And I think we are all brainwashed a little bit. <laughs> and that I think that the, and in some cases, 
the birth mothers are, I don't want to say brainwashed in that case, but I, I think the birth mothers are, are led to buy into a helpful narrative that their kids are, they're giving their kids a better life. But the truth is with adoption, they are not necessarily getting a better life. They are getting a different life and they are absolutely most often getting a more economically advantaged life, but they, if they were able to stay in their, their own biological family, they would not have the, the sort of whole of why would someone relinquish me that adoptees grapple with? They would not have the whole of um, who am I? Where do I come from that adoptees have? And that can sometimes lead to serious issues for the adoptees. I mean, adoptees are individuals with different constitutions and different ways of grappling and in different environments that they're that they're raised in, but it is never not there, I think. So given where you where you are so far, what what's sort of the overall message you would offer to perspective uh, adoptive parents what what would you like them to consider so at the very least i want them to think very critically and do more research um, about who is helping them with this process and to ask really 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 probing questions about how they are counseling um the struggling expectant parents who come to them thinking about placing for adoption is adoption presumed when someone comes to them for advice? Is what kind of options counseling are they offering? And in the process of adoption, what kind of you know, legal representation does the birth parent have that's, that, that's real, that's not actually, that where they're actually the client? What kinds of post-adoption counseling does everyone get? Like there's all sorts of questions and all sorts of resources people can go to to find those critical questions. But I also think that we need to think critically, just like from a bird's eye view. I mean, in the article, I talked about trying to, I'm trying to claim from from orthodoxy these terms that I found very useful. And we can just say before the fact and after the fact, but the lichakila when approaching like ritual questions, like trying to do it perfectly beforehand versus what do you do when something gets screwed up after the diabed? I find that useful. Bidyeved, we are all trying to, I think Bidyeved, we all need to think much more critically about what actually is in the best interest of the child that is placed. We need to think about racial issues. We need to think about openness with birth family. We need to look at the research that says that these things are really important to children's um, development as people and uh, so they grow up whole but lichakila i think we need to look at um how to avoid family separation as often as possible in the first place and i don't know all the answers to that but i think that that's a question that we need to really really address as a society i know for instance as jewish communities we step up for refugee families like individuals like we we rally around and we collect things. <laughs> I know that there are there are efforts to rally around um, foster parents in our communities to make sure that they are best able to support the children that are placed in their care. But what if we that what if there was a mechanism for rallying around 
families who were on the brink, where it really was an ill-timed pregnancy or where it was just, you know, X, you know, X resources that would make the difference between choosing to parent and facing that, that what seems like the only choice, but actually isn't often the only choice of placing for adoption. Because also in open adoption, there are no guarantees for the birth parent. And uh, uh, there, I mean, there are contracts in some states that are practically like, what is it, de jure versus de facto? They are Right. They're legally binding, but there's there's res- they don't have birth parents often will not have the resources to fight that in court. And so adoptive parents can intentionally pull a bait and switch or they can unintentionally or whatever out of fear or discomfort or not knowing exactly how to handle a situation, close stuff down. And it's as if that open adoption agreement never existed. So I'd rather for I'd rather there be more choices for expectant parents in that situation. You hinted at it a little bit, but I'm wondering: is there a broader message or agenda for the Jewish community, the Jewish establishment on adoption? I mean, you you pointed out in an earlier conversation that that certainly certain Jewish individuals with with a lot of connections in the community were were you know, responsible or played a big part in, in what some call the baby scoop era and really popularizing adoption, particularly with pressuring un- unwed mothers to, to give up their babies. So is there any reckoning that has to happen? Is is should should Jewish institutions play a role in 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 keeping, you know, like you maybe keeping keeping birth families together? So I will say that you're you're speaking of the Louise Weiss services. Um, that is the um, the perpetrator of abuses that were not uncommon in the era. So I think um, though they went further in some regards with the um, the like the multiples research that is examined in the documentary Three Identical Strangers. Um, there's like you know gnarly things that they shouldn't have done. Um, but they were part of a movement of well-heeled, well-meaning, uh, well-positioned women at the turn of the century who were trying to help children and whose agencies evolved with the times to trying to help teens who got you know, pregnant in mass numbers after World War II um, and whose families, mostly white, this was a white phenomenon, um, and whose families wanted to protect them and then whose babies were stripped from them. So that's the baby scoop era. And sure, it feels spooky that there was a major Jewish institution involved in that. I don't think that they were, except in that research, which is problematic. Um, and which, you know, I I think that the institution that is has the power to do so should give the records to make those records available to the children, to the now adult children who were involved in that research. But that's a, that's like a little micro thing. Uh, on a global level, I just think as Jews who are trying to make the world a just place um, and who don't want to be complicit in injustice in our personal lives, there's a tension that we need to pay to, to how we form our families and also informing our families. And there, I mean, I, I don't think adoption is a bad thing. 
it's a tricky thing. But it's also a tricky thing that adoptive parents find out that is tricky in myriad ways and need to and do very often just adapt so that we're parenting our kids as well uh, as we need and thinking about, you know, what, what they will need. I know many, many people who, for instance, adopted internationally thinking that they could avoid the whole birth mother issue and then came to realize that kids, that that was, it was like, that was a hole that needed filling. Like that was not, that didn't help. It helped them briefly feel like they were the sole mommy, but it didn't really help in the raising of their children. I'm not saying that's the motivation for all people who adopt internationally at all, but, but we, we just sort of learned the things we didn't know. Another short interruption. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or the curriculum that we're producing, you can engage in citizen philanthropy and support us. Every gift matters. There's a donation link right in the show notes. So thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support. All right, right, now back to our regularly scheduled program. There's, yeah, there's so much, so much here, so much, so much to, to discuss. I'm, 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 I'm certainly eager to see when you, when you do publish that, that academic article and sort of where your, your, your research and, 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 and storytelling goes. I think I wanted to close by asking, I'll admit that before I started researching this, I I was unaware there was such a thing as National Adoption Month. I, I think we we find out all the time there's a day or a month for something we didn't know about. But um, sort of just wondering how you how you feel about that as you as you've talked about adoption as something that should be celebrated, investigated, critiqued, sort of all at all at once. Like how do you feel that there is this attempt to, to publicize and, and presumably encourage it. Um, yeah, I would stop short of celebrated and say embraced. I mean, adoptees and adoptive families need to be fully embraced by our communities just for the health of the adoptees <laughs> and, <laughs> and the integrity of those families. But it is, I think, overly celebrated in that uh, I, I think National Adoption Month was started or Adoption Awareness Month was started as a way to encourage people to adopt from the foster system. And then it became something that was really pushing people towards adoption. And it was with this sort of orphan saving mindset. And we didn't go into this, but I think that that orphan saving mindset is dangerous. And maybe my biggest question is, what about the almana, the the yatom is the orphan, what about the widowed, the widowed mother, the equivalent of the widowed mother in our society is the you know, expectant mom facing like this challenge of like, how do I, what do I do? And widow and orphan go together pretty much all the time in our uh, texts. And that, that might be my big question is let's focus on today's equivalent of what the orphan is, which is a very complicated term, but let's uh, vulnerable children, but let's not forget their vulnerable first families. They're vulnerable families. Well, Mina Sherlander Morris, thank you, thank you so much for writing this essay and and, and sharing uh, some of your personal experiences. And 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 uh, I, I just thank you for 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 sharing your perspective and and discussing with us. 
Well, thank you for inviting me here. It's been a great conversation. Shabbat Shalom. Happy uh, Thanksgiving and Hanukkah. Yeah. Thanksgiving ka or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Minna Sherlander Morris. So what did you think of today's episode? I want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and that includes you. Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back next month with a brand new episode. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time. Oh,